Well, the highly anticipated matchup between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. And we were excited about it. We'd been looking forward to it all day. We sat down halfway through the first quarter. The game's going along normal, and halfway through the first quarter, a, a pretty normal football play transpires. A, a safety for the Buffalo Bills named DeMar Hamlin makes a pretty normal-looking tackle upon a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. And as he stood up after making the tackle, he just collapsed. And immediately they do what they normally do when there's an injury on the field. They cut to a commercial break. And the viewers at home is sitting there fully anticipating them to figure out what he hurt and help him get off the field so that they can resume playing the football game. That's typically how it happens. And so they went to a commercial break, and then they came back. And the scene on the field had not changed. In fact, the scene on the field looked even more serious. Still couldn't see him. There were players crowded around. So they go to a second commercial break. And it's at this point that the viewer at home begins to realize that this doesn't seem like a normal football injury. It doesn't usually go this long. And then when they come back to the scene on the field, you can see by the players' reactions that whatever is happening there with DeMar Hamlin, it is not normal. There are players crying. There are players on their hands and knees praying. There are players huddled together with holding hands praying for him. And then it begins to be reported. The commentators begin to let us know because you still can't see him. And by this point, there's an ambulance coming out there. There's, there's rescue first responders coming out there. And apparently, they are having to resuscitate him on the field around his teammates, around his opponents, around the coaches and the people on the field in a stadium full of tens of thousands of people at home, the only football game going in America where there are millions of viewers watching. And they work to resuscitate him. At this point, you know, you began looking for any kind of information about what's happening. You know, you get online and are there any other reports going on? What's happening? And they end up getting him to the hospital. They apparently have to resuscitate him again. He goes to the hospital. He's assisted to help him breathe and his, keep his heart going and everything. And then I'm happy to report to you that he is now awake and he is now breathing on his own which is great news. What an answer to prayer. But something happened in those moments that was very powerful. And sure, it happened in the midst of something that was unimaginably horrific. But in those moments where the human beings around Damar Hamlin felt completely helpless, people began to awake to the reality that there is a God. People began to pray. 
Here in this moment of clarity, in this moment of human weakness, in this moment of helplessness and fragility, in this moment where we feel like there's nothing we can do to help this scene, but we really badly want him to be okay, people instinctually begin to pray. People on the field, football players, praying on their hands and their knees, gathered together, get on social media. Everyone is praying for DeMar Hamlin. This person's praying. This person's praying. An ESPN commentator stopped on the air, bowed his head, and prayed for him. Never seen that before in my life. I bet you that DeMar Hamlin on Monday night was the most prayed for man in the world. God answered those prayers, by the way. DeMar Hamlin is alive and breathing and talking on the road to recovery. But what is it about those moments of crisis that cause human beings to awaken to a reality that is there all the time, but a reality that we do not normally all the time see or comprehend? What is it about those moments of weakness where we begin to realize that God is real? That what we see, the material things in front of us in the universe, do not fully account for reality. That there is indeed a God that we can appeal to who wants to help us. We saw that Monday night. Now I'm sure, church, that for many of those people praying Monday night, that God awareness was short-lived. We've seen this before, haven't we? You remember 9-11, how every church in the United States was full. If, you were, if you're old enough to remember 9-11-2001, everybody's going to church. I remember hearing preachers uh, predicting a revival across America because of this event, and we know that was short-lived. And I remember a similar thing happened with COVID. COVID-19, this worldwide pandemic, everyone's afraid, everyone's wondering, we don't know what to do. Is this going to kill us all? People were scared, and people began to turn towards God, to begin to turn towards the church. But, but as soon as things started fig- getting figured out there, right, people go back to normal, back to the status quo. But here's the reality. If you are here this morning, and you are in Jesus Christ, you are called not just to be awakened to the things of God in the moments of crisis. If you are in Jesus Christ, what that means is that the Holy Spirit has actually supernaturally awakened your heart and we are called to be awake and aware of the reality of God, of the presence of God, of the power of God, of the goodness of God, not just in times of crisis, but all of the time. That's who we are. In fact, I would argue that that's one way you can describe a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been awakened to the grace of God in Christ. A Christian, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is someone who was formerly blind, but their eyes have been awakened by the power of God in the gospel. That's what a Christian is. That's what C.S. Lewis said when he was describing his own conversion. He wrote these words, It was like a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is awake. 
That's Lewis's description of his own conversion to Christ. So conversion, if we, if we look at conversion to Christianity as the moment where we first awaken to the reality of God in Christ, then I would argue that discipleship and growth in the Christian life is learning to live in an awakened state. If I woke up the moment I first believed then discipleship and growth in, Christ, in the Christian life is learning to live by that faith. It is learning to live in an awakened state. It, it involves an effort on my part, empowered by the Spirit, to stay fully awake to the reality of God in every part of my life. And we see this. We see this over and over again in the Bible. This call to wake up. This call not to fall asleep, not to slumber, not to be slothful, not to give in to indifference. Awaken. Hey, I'm going to give you just a few examples. There's so many I couldn't include them all, but they're going to come up on the screen. So I just want you to see how big of a theme, how prevalent this call is in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.14 For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What's interesting about Romans 13 is that it's clearly being written to people who are already believers. And he's telling people who have already awakened, who have already first believed, that they need to wake up. The hour has come to wake up. That is the state in which we are to live. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Revelation 3, 2, and 3. This is one of those uh, letters to the church. And, and Jesus write, tells, this is a word from Jesus to the church at Sardis. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wake up. And of course, we remember Jesus' words to his sleeping disciples, right? When he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking toward the cross. Jesus is about to die. It's the night he was betrayed. He is about to go to the cross. And he comes out from praying to God, pleading with God to let this cup pass. And he finds his closest disciples asleep. And Jesus says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Wake up. It's a reminder over and over again. And so church, when we see something, all right, so just hear me out here. When we see something repeated again and again in the New Testament, over and over again, not just once, Jesus says it, Paul says it, Peter's like, we see this whole chorus of apostles warning the church that they need to wake up. When we see something like that, the only logical conclusion for us to draw is that 
falling asleep and living in a slothful, sleepy state must be something we are prone to do. Right? We're prone to do this. It's necessary because it's often that we live not aware, with, a, with not a clear vision of what God has done for us in Christ. And so I feel like the first thing we need to do is define what we mean by wakefulness. Because I think that it's easy when we hear this to mistake it for, for emotional highs, Right? A person who's awake is someone who is just always exuberant and joyful and they're living on top of the mountain all the time. And and church, hear me out. That is not what we're calling you to do here. That's not what the New Testament is calling you to do. Your emotions are going to ebb and flow. There are going to be days where you feel like you are on the highest mountaintop, but there are also going to be days where you feel like you are in the deepest valley. This is not about emotional state. To be awake, what we mean here is the sustaining daily awareness of the goodness of God for you in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. Are you living daily, sustained by the goodness of God in Christ? Do you understand how much your God loves you? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that He has made eternal promises to you that nothing can ever take away? Do you live with that awareness? Does that awareness change your approach to your circumstances? Does it change the way you respond to certain things that happen in your life? Do you have an impulse when when things go south to turn towards Him and bank upon His goodness for you in Jesus? We are called to live our lives. There's a Latin phrase, corum Deo, before the face of God. That's what it means. To live before the face of God where we understand that our entire lives are supposed to be lived out in His presence. There's no compartmentalization, in other words. You don't just come into the presence of the Lord when you enter this room on Sunday. Did you know that? Did you know that if you are in Christ, you are in the presence of God wherever you go? So we live in His presence. We are in His presence at work or at school or at home. We're always in His presence. I would argue that this has been a tendency of Christians from the beginning of the church to live asleep, to not be awake. But, but I think our age is particularly prone to the type of slothfulness and indifference that the New Testament is warning us about. We live in an age, church, where truth is often seen as relative. You just make it up as you want. We, we live in an age a digital age, and you think about the impact of all of the myriad of voices that are speaking to you at any given moment, any given day, telling you to care about this and care about that. And it's easy, it's tempting to hear all of those voices clamoring for our attention and just become indifferent and lethargic and just quit caring. And that's not an option for us. Indifference is not a fruit of the Spirit. 
We are not called to be indifferent. We are called to be concerned about the things of God. We are called to have our affections and our hearts shaped by the reality of the gospel. What does God care about? And the things that God cares about, church, we ought to care about too. To not care about those things is to be asleep. It's to be indifferent. And so we are kicking the year off with a little four-week series on Awake where we are going to examine this call. And today, we're going to look at three different passages in the New Testament. And I want to specifically name three things that the New Testament explicitly calls us to be awake to. Three things that we are called to live with an awareness of every day of our lives. What are those three things? Well, the first one is be awake to grace. And it's right here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Be awake to grace. Look at this call. Verse 13, Peter says, therefore. And when you see that word, therefore, always go backwards, right? We, we've got to understand what, what is he calling us to here because he's calling us to something in light of what he has just written. And what has he just written? I would argue that therefore refers back to everything he wrote between verses 3 and 12. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why, church, should we do this? Why should we prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us? Because everything in verses 3 through 12 is true. 
because you have been born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because God in Christ has given you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It can never be taken from you. You are in Christ, and what he has promised you is guaranteed just as surely as Jesus got up from the grave and breathed air in his lungs again. Just as sure as that event happened, no one can take what God has given you in Christ. That is yours. Your life is no longer defined by your salary. Your life is no longer defined by your success. Your life is no longer defined by how you feel or what your marriage turns out to look like or how your kids grow up to look and live. That is not what defines you. If you are in Jesus Christ, your life is defined by what Christ has done to save you. Therefore, See, the therefore is simply Peter saying, you've got to live in light of the gospel. You've got to live aware of grace. This needs to be more real to you than the various trials that come your way and test your faith. The reality of what Jesus has done for you needs to be louder It needs to be turned up and everything else turned down because this is now how you live your life. You live in full awareness, awake to what Christ has done for you. That's the call. When he says preparing your minds for action, if you have an older translation, it may say something like girding up the loins of your mind. And that's weird. But it's a specific image you got to remember that people didn't dress as fashionably as we do today back then. Men wore robes, long robes. And imagine someone sprinting down the street in a long robe. That would be difficult. Or fighting a battle in a long robe. So what they would do is they would pull up the skirts of their, of their robe and they would tuck it into their belts so that they were free, so there was no hindrance, so that they could move. And then they would be able to run or they would be able to fight or whatever it is they were called to do. That's the image there. So he says, he applies this to the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind or prepare your minds for action. We are called not to be passive with our minds. We are called to remove all hindrances to keep us from seeing the glory of God in Christ. This requires action. This requires planning. We're not passive to our thoughts. We have to be active in our thoughts. We put the thoughts there that we want to think about. And then he says, sober-minded. And this is something that, honestly, church, I had never seen this connection until this week. But so many of these passages to, to wake up have this combined with it. Be awake and be sober-minded. It was in the First Thessalonians passage that we read earlier. Sober-minded, to, to live not drunk in our mind, not inebriated, but to have evenness of mind, to be consistent and stable, to understand every day that the reality of the gospel is true and to let that define the way we approach everything. Soberness. Now listen to me. 
if this call does not feel countercultural to you and radical to you, then you don't fully get it. Because we live in an age where telling our mind what to think is completely countercultural. We don't live in an age where, where, where we are active in our mind. We live in an age where we are passive to however we feel. Whatever thoughts come in there control so much. So this idea that we are called to actually take the things that are currently there and remove them by pushing in the realities that God has made for us in Christ is completely crazy sounding to us. We listen to ourselves. That's what our whole culture celebrates. Listen to yourself. You want to know what gender you are? Listen. What do you feel like? That's what you are. You want to know if you love somebody? Listen to yourself. Do you love somebody? Because if you don't, if that love's not there, if you listen and you don't hear anything, you need to get out. Right? This is how we think about the inner life of the person in our age. But listen, church, that is not the way we think about the gospel. That's not how it works. So I have this quote from this preacher. Maybe you've heard of him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was uh, Welsh. He was a medical doctor. Late in life, he became a pastor. And he has this sermon he does on, on this very thing, on how the Christian mind is supposed to work. And I don't usually like to read really long quotes because it's really easy to, for you to kind of zone out and miss the point, but I have to read all of this, okay? It's that good. So I want you to try your best to listen as I read this quote because this captures so well what I believe 1 Peter is teaching us. This is what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself 
and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Church, that's countercultural, but it is not counterbiblical. We are called to tell ourselves the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to gird up the loins of our mind, to set our hope. That's what he says. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, live in light of the gospel and the reality of the truth of what Christ has done for you. You are not condemned. You are not hopeless. You have a future. You have an identity. You have an inheritance. Live in light of it. Realize that your story is not defined by the circumstances you see in front of you. There's this new show. It's, it's two years old now. It's called Ghosts. Have you seen it? They advertise it all the time. If you haven't, I'm surprised. But anyway, this couple, they buy an old mansion and there's ghosts who live in it. And only the wife can see the ghost. The husband can't see the ghost. So he'll come in the room and she's talking to the ghost. And he has no idea. It just looks like she's talking to nobody. And so the, the humor in the show is how she can also go to other places, other, other events, and she can see ghosts at other places too. And she'll be talking and, and someone will walk by and they'll just look at her like, oh my word, is this woman crazy? Because she's talking to a reality that is really there, but nobody else can see. In church, and there's a sense in which that's exactly what we're called to do. Now, obviously, we look at that show and we think, oh, that's crazy, that's fiction, and it is. But the reality that we can see is really there. The problem is that other people can't see it because you can only see it by faith. But it's there. And we are called to live in that reality. And just like she looks ridiculous because she is living in a reality that other people can't see, you and I are going to look ridiculous too. And that's okay. Because we believe that what we see is not the sum total of what is really there. That we have a God who loves us and has saved us and we are going to live in that reality before the world. The call here is to reject passivity with our thoughts and our feelings. That we don't believe that we're the victim of whatever feeling comes over us on any given day. We are called to discipline our minds, to tell ourselves the truth, to say to ourselves sometimes, no, I won't listen to that lie. I will no longer live in self-pity or fear or condemnation. I am going to live in the hope of the gospel. I am going to make myself aware of the love of God, of the grace of Christ, of the eternal hope that I have in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll have to come up with your own strategy. That's going to look differently for each one of us. How do you live awake to grace? I know people who say, I only listen to explicitly Christian music. That's not me, because I like fish and Grateful Dead a little too much. I, I worship God because I see how he's gifted these guitarists, these drummers. <laughs> but here's the reality. 
For some of you, that's exactly what you need. And that's a, that's a question we should explore. What, what am I putting in my mind? And is that focusing my outlook elsewhere? Do I need the reminder of explicit song lyrics that are lifting me up to God as I go on my way to work? Do I need that to stay focused and awake and alive to these realities? I, I, my wife, a few years ago, went through a season where she was struggling with some things and she made a commitment. Every single day, I am going to read the Bible before I pick up my phone, no matter how I feel. And that's what she did. And she points back to that now as being huge and helping her as a strategy to get back to living in this reality. That's a really good practice. Maybe you need to listen to the Bible on your way to work. I've heard of people pasting Bible verses and promises around their house. You think about the things we have here at church, equip groups. Some of you are members of equip groups where you gather with, with a certain number of people each week or every other week so that you can just pray and read the Bible together. And maybe that is a reminder that you desperately need to keep you awake to the grace of God in your life. Sunday morning worship. Listen to me, church. Can I just ask you, make it a habit to be here. Make it a habit we, we need this. The Bible tells us we need this. And yeah, there's going to be times where things happen. People are sick. You're going to travel. There's going to be reasons that you can't be here. But on the whole, as a habit, this keeps us awake. This keeps us alive. We gather together. We are reminded that God is doing so much, even right here in the midst of our church. We need this. The goal is that being awake to grace is a way of life. And I don't need to remind you that the world's not going to help you with that. There's nothing in the world that's going to help you stay aware of God's presence and His promises and everything He's done for you in Jesus. The world is a conspiracy to make you forget. Here's the second thing. Be awake to soul danger. Just flip over to, with me to the end of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. We're going to stop right there here. So, so you see there's a link with sober-mindedness. We, we just saw that in the first passage we looked at. We see it again here, and he doesn't say be awake. He says be watchful, which is a synonym. It's a parallel idea. To be watchful is to be on guard. You can't be watchful if you're not awake, Right? To be awake is to be watchful. The, the, the New Testament uses three primary metaphors for the Christian life. It describes the Christian life as a journey. It describes the Christian life as a race that we're running. We heard that read earlier in a passage Dan shared, and it describes the Christian life as a battle. And in all three of those metaphors, the idea of being watchful is implied. It is necessary. Could you imagine running a race without being aware of the terrain? 
Could you imagine going on a journey without knowing where you were going? Could you imagine fighting a battle in a sleepy state? Right? You have to be aware. You, you have to have your mind open to danger that's really there. And that's the focus here. The focus in this passage is that there is an adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, fierce, hungry lion. He is seeking someone to devour. Not just someone, church. He is seeking you to devour. This is a real danger. We're not just talking here in fun, little cute metaphors. There really is a devil. There really are demons who oppose us. And their methods are to lie to us, to accuse us, to tempt us, to contradict the voice of God. And their goal is to steal our joy, to enslave us again by guilt and shame to the law to make us feel stuck, to make us feel hopeless, to make us feel like there's no way out, to make us, make us feel like there's no escape, to dull the glory of the promises of God in Christ for us. So our days are never safe. There's no neutral space. You can't take a day off. There is a battle to be fought every single day, whether you are on vacation or whether you are waking up on Monday morning to go to work like you do every single week. That's the state that we live in. And, and here's the reality. I know you, you hear me saying that and you go, well, that sounds depressing. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you why it's not depressing. Because even though, listen to me, even though you and I are no match for the devil, if it were you fighting Satan, you would lose every time. Our Lord and our Savior has already defeated our enemies. And that is where we live. In the New Testament, we see three enemies named again and again. The world... The flesh, that's ourself. The old man that we see rising its, his head up again, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three forces conspire against us. Well, let me tell you what Jesus has done to each one of those enemies. John 16.33, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Romans 6.6 Paul says, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has defeated the flesh. If you are in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You say, but I don't feel like I'm not enslaved. I don't care how you feel. The reality is that Jesus has done it. It is a reality for us. It, is, it has objectively happened. Our life now is supposed to be rooted in that reality. That is what's true. Your sin is gone. Your sin has been defeated. It can't enslave you anymore. Stop living enslaved. Stop doing the same things you've always done. You don't have to do it anymore. Jesus has really done this for you. 
Colossians 2.15, Paul says, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has vanquished even the demons. They have been defeated too. He has defeated our enemies. And our job, church, is simply this. Live your life in His victory. Live in His victory. Live in the awareness of the reality of what He's done. Aware that there's danger, but also equally aware that every one of those dangers, He's already beaten. And then finally... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be awake to Jesus' return. Look at what Paul says here. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now this is a repeated theme, and it was repeated by Jesus again and again in His parables. Jesus was teaching His disciples that we have to live with expectation that He could come at any time. Listen, I've told you before, my house has been broken into by thieves. You don't know when they're coming. That's the whole idea, like a thief in the night. They don't send you like a warning ahead of time. Jesus is going to return. And this perspective, the reality of His return, changes everything. It means that the way the world currently is, is not ultimate. Christ is coming, and when He comes, He is going to judge the earth, and He is also going to fully redeem His people and fully redeem the earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And our lives are supposed to be lived in such a way that if he were coming back tomorrow, we wouldn't have to change a thing. You hear that? If I know Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I will wake up and I will go about the same things I've gone about my whole life. That's the way we're supposed to live. Just keep being faithful. <laughs> keep living in light of the gospel. And you'll be ready. You'll be ready to welcome Him when He returns. Now one of the things that He has given us to stay ready for His return is the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.26, I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up here as we prepare to, to celebrate this meal together this morning. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so you see the connection between this meal and being ready, proclaiming His death until He comes. This meal, by the way, is a foretaste of a greater meal that we are going to eat with all of the redeemed. The, the Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7. When all of God's people resurrected will gather around our Savior and celebrate the biggest, most festive, best food you've ever eaten, the most celebratory meal you've ever been a part of. That's what we're 
waiting for. And in the meantime, we gather in our worship service around this little bitty table with these little bitty pieces of bread and these little bitty cups of juice. And we look forward to that day. Now, we sent out an email this week where I, I, we're making a pretty drastic change. As Ashland Community Church, um, we are going to begin doing this weekly. This is not just going to be quarterly like it was before, but we are going to do the Lord's Supper every single week. And, and, and you may never have been a part of a church that has done it that frequently, and you may have doubts about that. And I want to explain a little bit of our reasoning right now. And, and the first thing I want to say is that if you've ever been a part of a church that doesn't do it weekly, we're not calling them unfaithful. <laughs> the, the New Testament actually doesn't tell us how often to do this. It just doesn't. It doesn't say to do it every week. It doesn't say to do it every month. It just says to do it. It is a command. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. And so we, we've got to do it if we are going to obey the command of Christ. That's not an option. But I want to tell you three reasons why we're going to do it every week. And the first one is because I believe it helps us stay awake to the gospel. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood spilled for you poured out for you. We eat this meal because it makes the promises of the gospel tangible to us. We are feasting on Christ, on what Christ has done. We are feasting on Him by faith. And when we feast on Him by faith through our participation of the Lord's Supper, I believe that He seals His promises to our consciences. This is a, another avenue for us to experience the sanctifying grace of God in our lives, not the justifying grace of God. No one's saved through the Lord's Supper, right? That doesn't happen. We are saved by faith alone. But the sanctifying grace of God, the assurances of God, he is speaking to us through His Spirit as we gather around this table as a church. But secondly, because the New Testament associates this meal with unity. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because we are all one in Christ. And he, he says that or in the context of this meal, that we are showing our oneness. Why? Because... And by the way, that's the reason we went away from the little crackers to the one loaf. <laughs> because the one loaf represents the one body of Christ broken for us. And so when we, we come around the one loaf, we see the unity. It doesn't matter how different we are or, or what our different preferences are. This body of Christ unites this body of Christ. All right. And then the third reason is because that's what families do. Families celebrate meals. And we're a family. And we need to be reminded of that. We gather together each Lord's Day as a family. When my family, when things are going the best, we're having regular sit-down meals together. Seats at that table with my family confer identity. They, it's reminders to me and my children, my wife, that we all are part of the same family. 
Church, we need that reminder here as well. So who is this meal for? Well, Jesus says that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. That means that it is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have also been baptized publicly, identifying with Jesus. That's who it's for. If you are here today and you trust in Christ, He is your only hope. He is your salvation. You are saved by faith, through grace, in Christ alone. Then this meal is for you if you have also been baptized. But we also believe that this is tied to the church. And so we want you, if you're here today and you're a member of another church, that's also a gospel-believing church, and you've been baptized biblically, we invite you to celebrate this meal with us as well. So this is, so just to sum it up, for those who trust in Christ alone, who have been baptized biblically, and who are accountable members of a local church. And so with that said, I want to invite folks up to the front to begin getting the elements so that you can return back to your seat and then we will eat them together uh, all at once. But I'll invite you to come at this time.
a little smoother as time goes on here. But let us remember how we are commanded to take and celebrate this together. Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you see what I said? 